This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And he swings, hits it high, and deep, and gone! Still going back! Welcome back to The Call-Up, your go-to podcast on the future stars of Major League Baseball. Hope you had a wonderful Christmas or happy holidays, and we're looking forward to the new year as well. But we're still going to be giving you a couple episodes this week. Today, we're talking top catching prospects in Major League Baseball as we're going to continue to get through each of the positions, leading us into probably a top 100 update somewhere in between. We'll also be talking Cincinnati Reds prospects next episode this week as well. So really excited about this week, Jack. I'm Arm Waiting. He's Jack McMullen. Jack, we wanted to make sure that we don't put out all the top 10s before we put out our 2024 top 100 list. The 2024 top 100 list, just full disclosure, it's not going to be that different than the end of 2023 because not that many things happen. Yes, I got out to the Arizona Fall League. I was able to get some looks. Uh, There are some things that, you know, sometimes I'm just catching up and I see a little bit more on certain players that I couldn't see when we're on the hamster wheel. That is the, the season, keeping up with MLB and the minor leagues. So sometimes it's just more conviction in some of our assessments. Um, But again, it's rare that anyone makes a major jump in that regard, but there's going to be some shuffling around in the updates. So we'll probably only do one or two positions before at least the 2024 updates put out. But I am excited to get through catchers and just also breaking down each of these positions because it gets us the opportunity to stray outside the top 100 as well. As people will notice, some of the players at each position won't be top 100 guys, but it'll give you an idea of where they stack up relative to the other prospects at their position. Yeah. And these are good because by position, like you can just kind of sort within the top 100. Hey, we've got nine catchers within the top 100 prospects. So you organize those from one through nine, and then you add one that's outside the top 100. There are some premium positions that, you know, you're not going to venture outside of the top 100 and see any new names like shortstop. There are 10 shortstops in the top 100. There are 10 center fielders or corner outfielders within the top 100. But, you know, a position like first base, how many are you going to have? Three? Three. Two? Yeah. Three, maybe. How many left-handed pitchers are you going to have? Two? Three? So I I think that's where things are going to get interesting when it comes to these positional top tens. And it's just kind of a good way to know where your favorite team's top prospect stacks up when you are comparing apples to apples instead of apples to oranges and you're going win to, you know, like Jackson Joe, how are you going to do that? I have no idea, Um, but that'll be good. And then ETA for the top 100 in 2024, we were talking, we, Hey, this extravagant rollout opening day, we're going to shoot for beginning of January. So you guys just have that in your hands. A hundred percent. So one thing I wanted to say before I forget, 
you hit on a really important point here. This gives us a rare opportunity to be able to compare apples to apples. When we do team top prospect lists, again, we're still usually comparing across different positions. When we do talk about the top 100 and take you through 15 by 15 or 20 you know, prospects at a time, they're rarely the same position. And oh, honestly, to peel back the curtain, what, the way I usually approach this is I kind of hash it out by by a position and then figure out exactly how these guys compare to each other. And then you put the prospects in between judging by how big of the gap you think, you know, there is between the eighth best shortstop prospect and the seventh best. But the big reason why I enjoy this is you get to really talk about why X prospect at shortstop or X prospect in this instance at catcher is ranked ahead of Y. And it's very specific because you're looking at the same things uh, with these players, especially at catcher when you're looking at framing, receiving, blocking, in addition to the offensive upside. So that part of it is really fun. And then before we jump into it, just the, the top prospect list thing, the top 100 side of things, we are probably going to put out that update, like you mentioned this month. And then What'll probably happen is we'll walk you through each of those you know, 20 at a time. However, depending on how our pace is, you never know. But then also when we get closer to the season, I do get to get as many live looks as, as possible. You know, it is one of my favorite times of the year in February, March, when I can get out to these backfields, whether it's, you know, down here in South Florida or back up somewhere in Arizona or wherever it may be, and just see a ton of players. There's so many uh, intra-squad games, sometimes playing other minor league affiliates, and you're able to get a lot of good looks. I don't think anything will drastically change in the top 100, but there might be some subtle updates leading into opening day. And we'll do an episode on that, too. So I'm excited about that. We'll probably have two updates before opening day, even without a ton of baseball going on, which is always fun. I want to start with the honorable mentions and some players that maybe were in consideration. Catcher's tough because there's a lot of moving parts, right? There's is he going to stick there? Right. Because we could talk about a Moises Ballesteros. And all of a sudden you're thinking, okay, he's probably a better hitter than some of the guys on the top 10, but what are his chances of sticking? We just talked about him in the Cubs system as a guy that it's going to be tough to see if he's going to stick there. That part of it makes it a little difficult, but you you know, we kind of zoom out and say, okay, if we're starting a franchise, who am I taking to potentially be my catcher? And some of the guys that snuck in at the back end just got the edge, but who are some honorable mentions for you, Jack? Obviously off the top of my head, and we're going to talk a little 23 Bowman draft, so we'll get to Blake Mitchell in a second. But, you know, I, I just missed, is it still a Diego Cartaya, who I, I know he's slipped and fell, but he's still among the, the top 20 most intriguing catching prospects with the upside, you know, with the youth and with what we've seen in the past. I think there's a few other guys you could probably float in there, but as a true catcher, because a lot of times it's guys that kind of slip out of the position, probably not going not gonna to be there. Who are some other honorable mentions for you? Of course, Blake Mitchell with the Royals. We'll get into with Bowman draft in a moment. Dude, like, I don't know. This is kind of the one position where I, where I think we look at it and say, like, I'm not sure who the other guys that are close to this list are. Um, I think some would argue that Kevin Parada should be close to this list. Uh, the Georgia Tech kid that was a first round pick of the Mets. But I know that you're a bit more down on him. Uh, then I'd say most are, but like some are, I know there are some people that are really down on him aside from that, man. Like, I don't know. A lot of my guys that I thought were top 10 catching prospects debuted and lost their prospect status this past year. Like Henry Davis was a top 10 catching prospect in baseball. Andy Rodriguez was, I think Pat Bailey was knocking on the door of a top 10 catching prospect. I think he probably was back end, but Mm -hmm. all those guys have graduated. There is one guy that's like, 
10 plate appearances away from graduating that I'm very happy is on this list because we give him a lot of credit. His organization does not. And I think the rest of baseball doesn't really understand how good this guy is as a catcher. Mm. We're going to get to him a little bit deeper into the top 10, but there's really nobody else that jumps to my mind. And it's like, yes, that's a big omission. Yeah. I, I'd say a couple names, Daniel Susak, you know, again, another relatively early draft pick had some pretty good numbers, especially in high a with, with Oakland. And um, yeah, I think he's definitely a, a notable prospect that is, is going to have a straight path to some sort of big league role. Also a kind of a question if he's going to stick back there, but I know they like the bat. Yeah, a lot of the guys that are like on the fringe are guys that are starting to transition out of the catching spot. Yiner Fernandez, who I got to see in the AFL, we just talked about him in the Dodger system. He's kind of transitioning more into an infield role. So that's not really the case anymore. Uh, it, it's an interesting kind of setup there where there's there's guys that either are really truly catchers or in between and you're not sure. Dom Keegan, I, I, I liked him in terms of what I saw with the bat in the AFL, of course, Royals prospect, but I don't know how it's going to play behind the dish. I will say that they don't have a lot of options in that system catching wise, so they may work really hard to continue to get him those reps back there. And even if he could be serviceable, I like the bat. I think he works hard back there, but the receiving is a work in progress. The blocking is a work in progress, but I do like Dom Keegan. And then Andrew Cassetti, another guy that I saw in the AFL with the twins. Cassetti had a really nice year, a little bit older for the level, maybe not as great as I was hoping it would be in the AFL, but Cassetti with the twins, I think is a very intriguing catching prospect outside of this top 10 that, that deserves a little bit of shine. Um, we're going to talk 2023 Bowman draft before we get right into the top 10, because I want to talk about Blake Mitchell, who is one of the players in 23 Bowman draft and was drafted very early with the Royals. A little bit of a surprising pick, but at the same time, a lot of upside and the Royals kind of were playing into that savings and, and playing into the upside and then using the savings elsewhere. Mitchell's got big power. And you know what? I, when I was doing the 2023 Bowman draft uh, write-ups, which is on topsrip.com, you can go check that out. I had to talk about Blake Mitchell. And the swing is really nice. I, I know that he struggled, and I think it was high school catcher trying to get his feet wet. It, it's really difficult. We, we see the stigma with high school catchers. But Mitchell's a guy that I think a lot of people are probably overlooking. Uh, obviously, you're looking for more of the other autos in, in the product. But if you're going to collect a catcher, I'd rather it be someone with huge upside that's far away than a guy that you're kind of just trying to get excited about. That might just be kind of an average catcher if it all works out. So I like the idea of catch collecting some Blake Mitchell autos, even though he's not a top 10 guy here, because you know what? He's got upside to be one of the better catching prospects in baseball if it all comes together. He's powerful from the left side. He has an absolute rocket for an arm. He was up to the mid 90s on the mound and He's just a good athlete. So if it all clicks, it might take a little bit longer, but if I'm going to have a catcher card, I'd rather have it be a guy with, with big upside who could be, you know, a pretty dynamic backstop. Yeah. I, I do like kind of the way that you are um, a pitching the Blake Mitchell thing. I, I don't, I don't think you're really like pitching it right now, but if you do close your eyes and see the future catcher of the Kansas city Royals, there, like, Hey, it's worth a shot, at least at a base card. And I'm scanning the base card checklist right now. I don't see another catcher that was drafted in the first round, but Ralphie Velasquez, I think, is also a just-missed guy because his bat really plays. Does he play first base? Yeah, I have no idea. Um, Mitchell does seem to have true staying power at catcher, which, if I'm not mistaken, slightly ups his value in terms of card, right? Yeah, it's interesting because people have like a stigma with catchers. And so like if you rake 
then they don't really care if you stick there or not. But I think it should matter because if you stick a catcher, you got a better chance of getting up to the big league. So as much as people want to have that stigma with, with catching prospects, when you're collecting a guy's chances of reaching the big leagues, which ultimately is you're collecting these cards in the hope that they will be big leaguers. It helps their chances drastically if they can stick behind the dish. But I will say Velasquez is another guy. Yes. Did just miss. And I'm glad you brought him up because he did play mostly first base and DH, you know, when he, got his little complex taste, but if he does get a little bit of an opportunity as a catcher, he could be kind of cut from the Basayo cloth, the Ballesteros cloth where they're catching a couple times a week and then mostly playing first DH and just raking. That will be a card that I think is more enticing to people as those guys climb through the levels. The other really interesting thing about Bowman draft is while Ethan Salas wasn't drafted and he already does have his, his autographed cards in other sets in 2022, of course, Bowman being smart, they put in some really interesting and exciting autographs for Ethan Salas. It's not his first, but there are some really cool autographs that you can pull in there, too. Chances are probably a little bit slimmer, like like a Brady auto, maybe not as slim as that. But they do have some unique, I think, out of five autographs with him in there and, and Ethan Salas out of 99 and some other refractors and unique stuff there. I'll tell you what, if I if I'm opening Bowman draft and I end up pulling a Salas who's not in this draft class, I'd be pretty freaking hyped and out of the image variations autograph checklist it's kind of funny you'll see how they really hit on the right names here for image variations it's ethan salas it's drew jones it's paul Skeens, matt shaw chase davis Braden taylor max clark wyatt lankford jackson holiday and enrique bradfield jr those are the 10 cards that have this specific type of image variation which I think it's a pretty fun name or group of names there um and the last thing i'll mention on on bowman draft I told you that someone pulled that that Brady, that one of one Brady auto. It came back a PSA nine and it's up for bidding on golden auctions. There's 18 days left, Jack. It's already at ninety thousand dollars. Oh, another oh. noted catching prospect, Tom yeah. Brady. That's why we had to mention it. If you look at the uh, at the picture in uh, in the card or, or for the card, he has his catcher's mitt. And of course, that Expos hat on. I don't know what kind of catcher he would have been. I can tell you he would have been very cerebral. Uh, he probably yeah. would have called it a good game. And, yeah. you know, he definitely would have maximized everything back there. But it's funny. They kind of hedge the limited catchers. They don't do breaks by position. But if they did, the back and like sneaky aspect of, of the catching position in this product would be pretty funny because you'd have Salas autos in there, even though it's not his first. You have the Brady autos in there, which everybody would be chasing. And then you technically have Ralphie Velasquez, who I love as a bat, as you mentioned, a uh, first round bat alone. And then you've got Blake Mitchell, early first round pick with a lot of projection. So some sneaky catching options in this product. I think so. Uh, you snagged a non actually, you know what? He was a catcher mm-hmm. for a little bit, but you snagged a sneaky uh, has-been catcher that just happens to play a really good outfield, too. Yeah, so I, I opened my first box, hopped in a break there, and uh, I got a White Langford auto. So he wouldn't count as a catcher. Doesn't matter. Uh, I was very amped to get that. So I'll obviously be holding on to the White Langford Bowman Chrome auto I pulled, but was very yeah. pumped about that. So I'll be updating you guys on what I pull. And we're going to try to do like a live break one of these days if I can get my hands on a box. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll do a live stream on our YouTube, break some of these cards and just talk drafts. So keep an eye out for that. Let's jump into it, man. Top 10. Let's do it. Top 10 catching prospects coming right up here. So we'll start with number 10. And we talked about the honorable mentions. I think this was the one guy that wasn't like for sure in, 
And we had a conversation about some of these honorable mentions, but at the end of the day, it was his staying power at, at catcher and just the high floor that put him over the top. Drew Romo with the Colorado Rockies. He, he was somebody that we talked about recently in the Rockies top prospect update. If you're just finding us now, you can go check that out a couple episodes ago when we broke down the you know 2024 top prospects for the Rockies. And Romo's a guy that's, I think, somewhat of a victim of prospect fatigue. We didn't talk about that in the Rockies episode, but I feel like he almost is to a degree because he his high floor, I think, earned him the opportunity to kind of be a well-regarded prospect right away. And obviously an earlier draft pick as a high school guy, the, the makeup and just kind of having all of those intangibles that you love about a catcher. I think that really pushed him up and he had some aggressive assignments and the offense didn't always shine through. The EVs were not always great. And I think people just kind of got bored of the lack of flash, but what do you want out of a catcher? I just want him to play great defense, call a good game and you know, hit decently. And that's exactly what he did last year. And he did better than that down the stretch. He shook off a really slow start and had a really nice finish in what was the hardest place to hit in the Rocky system in double A. And that was the most telling thing. Like, sure, if he hits in Albuquerque, great. Like, if he hits in the lower levels and some of those other places, great. But I think what really sold me was the performance in double A Hartford, which is not a great place to hit. That is the checkpoint. Hartford is the checkpoint. Like Albuquerque is not so much a checkpoint. If you succeed in Albuquerque, I really don't think it means that you can succeed in Colorado. I think if you succeed in Hartford, that means you can succeed in Colorado because that place, and it's not like you're playing in the swamp. Like it's Hartford, Connecticut, really nice climate. But um, Colorado is obviously the most hitter friendly climate in Major League Baseball. Albuquerque is arguably the most hitter-friendly climate in AAA baseball. And then you go to Fresno and you go to Spokane. Like, those are very easy places to hit. Romo, was it a game in July where he doubled his homer output on the year? He came in with three homers. He left with six. He ends the year with 13. It came late. So the last couple of months, he really showed off the power. And all 13 of those home runs came in Hartford. 13 in Hartford is no joke. Like if that was Albuquerque, I mean, we're looking at 18, 19, maybe 20 homers for Romo. Probably don't think he's that. We're going to play a game as we kind of move because this is apples to apples. You mentioned it's it's stacking one up and saying, hey, here's why this guy is better than the guy below him. Yeah. The first iteration of that game is Romo versus Ballesteros because that's really what it came down to. Yeah, You asked me, I gave you my answer, you agreed. Now I ask you on a hot microphone, why is Romo a better catching prospect than Ballesteros at this very moment? It's the staying power behind the dish. And and, and, and that's the thing is, you know, you're, you're building a team and you want a guy that can really play catcher. And, and Ballesteros might be the, the better bat. Of course, he's probably going to be a guy that makes more of an, an impact offensively when it's all said and done. I, I do really believe in that bat, as we talked about in the Cub system update very recently. But if I'm taking a catcher here, like I feel like it's very easy to find first baseman. It's not easy to find catchers who can really catch and also hit their weight from both sides of the plate. It has been a weird phenomenon with Romo being good from one side one year and then better from another side the next year. I don't know what that is. Hopefully he irons all that out. But when you have an above average field to hit, I, I I would almost lean plus, but his his high chase rates undermine that. But really good bat to ball skills, great defender overall, and all of the intangibles you want to see. I just feel very safe with Drew Romo. And we're, we're not 
comparing prospect number three to prospect number two, where the safety may not be as important at the back end of the top 10 probability of being a big league catcher really matters. And that's ultimately what, what matters the most. And uh, that's why he gets the edge. And, and I like some of the things that I saw in the AFL when I caught him in person, I, I just had a weird, like flashback when I first mentioned Biasteros, did I say Basayo the first time? Or did no, I get, you said by yourself. Okay, good. Sometimes I like almost think I made a mistake and then I remember I didn't. So my mistake there or not. Um, the last thing I'll say on, on Romo, you mentioned the three home run game. He had two, three run, three home run games that year. Like last year he had two, three home run games for a guy that hit 13. You mentioned on the year. That's, yeah. that's insane. Half of them came in in a span of two games. So really interesting there. And hopefully he can kind of tap into that a little bit more consistently, but it's going to be more line drives and gappers and all that good stuff. So next up, number nine on the list. And I think this is where it already started to kind of solidify a little bit for me, Jack, where pretty much once we ironed out number 10, I felt pretty confident about the way that we could stack these guys moving forward. I think you can move one way or another, but Ramon Ramirez, who is in the back end of our top 100 list uh, that I think is the best prospect in the Royal system and also better than Blake Mitchell, which is funny, uh, another catcher. Ramirez is a guy I think we surprised a lot of people by putting him in the top 100 list. And now I'm starting to see a lot of helium there. I, I think I saw him ranked as the top prospect in a few different outlets in the Royal system. And I agree. Uh, he is a really fun player that put up ridiculous numbers in the DSL. Yes, we take DSL numbers with a grain of salt, always. But even the DSL data we'll take with a grain of salt. But I was able to get some good looks video-wise, open side, able to get a look at some of the you know back-end data and things like that, and you piece it all together. And I mean, this is a guy I'd be really excited about if I was in the Royals org. Uh, 18 years old, he slashed 347, 442, 620 in 41 games in the DSL. But the contact rates being near 90% zone contact, uh, 90th percentile is over 102. And the swing is just so efficient already for a guy that's as young as he is, already flashing above average power to the pull side, really good control of his lower half, great feel for the barrel, drives the ball to all fields. I think this could be one of the biggest, uh, I think, helium guys going into this year. I think he's going to become a very popular name and could be the next guy who really surprises with how quickly he can get to full season ball. Yeah. Well, he's probably getting to full season ball this year in 2024. He was 18 years old in 2023 in the Dominican. So you would assume that he goes to the complex for a little bit. Hell, if he has a decent showing in spring training, he may just break with low A, yeah. uh, which would be great to see over a full season. And I think that further warrants his, you know, breakout tag that he's getting. 41 games, this guy hit 344, had 17 extra base hits and 18 strikeouts. Yeah. He almost had as many extra base hits as he did strikeouts. And those are just the stats, like not pointing to the analytics or anything. Um, so I ask you now, what makes Ramon Ramirez better than Drew Romo, aside from the fact that he's four years younger and put up crazy DSL numbers? I think he also has a great chance of sticking behind the dish. And, and also fun, he signed for $57,000 in 2023. Yeah. So it's, it's, for a guy to that quickly show that he was a steal, I think it's part of the reason why we may, have, may see a little bit of reluctance to see him pushed up quickly up these rankings because 
usually low budget IFA guys really got to show it because a lot of times we, we chase the paper trail when it comes to some of the rankings. So for me, it's, I think he has a chance to have just as good bat to ball skills as Romo. I think he has more power. He may not have the intangibles. I don't know. He was 17 years old at the start of the DSL season. So, I mean, to do what he did, he's obviously a little bit more advanced than a lot of the, the, the players he's he's playing with. And I do think he has a really good chance to stick behind the dish. The arm was above average. I thought he was a pretty decent receiver. Uh, obviously, a long way to go in terms of really knowing if he's going to stick there. But I think he's got the goods. He moves well. He, he looks athletic. And his swing looks extremely athletic. To have that big leg kick and really get into his backside, but control it so well at 17, 18 years old and still be on time consistently enough to make 88, 89 percent contact in the zone uh, as a player as young as he is. I thought that was really impressive. It's hard to find a ton of velocity in the DSL, but every once in a while you get a freak throwing hard. I found some of my bats with the hard throwing freaks, even with the big leg kick, all the moving parts, always on time, always good swings, good takes. This is a guy I'm really willing to put my name on and say, you know, look out. I I think he's definitely one of the most underrated prospects in the entire industry. And I think he's somebody that probably will be near the top of this list by the time we talk next year. It's given the Jefferson Caro from a couple years ago when you and I talked about it. It's giving Jefferson Caro good. Yep. Yep. Next, we get to number eight. And I want I want your thoughts, too, because we are basing this on kind of the top 100 and where we were at there. But Ramirez, is a guy that you haven't seen a ton of, obviously, kind of working off of some of the write ups in the video that I've been able to send you. But then next we go to Ivan Herrera, who we have seen plenty of and has played almost as many games at the big league level as Ramirez has professionally. Uh, and Herrera with the Cardinals, I feel like it's just in a weird spot. He's in limbo and I'd almost like to see him moved. But maybe with the way that the position's working, they may split time behind the dish. Contreras maybe get some DH role opportunities. I don't know, because they also are kind of clogged up there, too, in the DH spot. I would love to see Ivan Herrera moved, because I think this guy is a big league ready catcher. And I think, talk about prospect fatigue. Of all the guys we're going to talk about today, this is the most, I think, the biggest victim of prospect fatigue when it comes to just him not almost getting the the appreciation he deserves. I thought he was fantastic last year, even in his snippets in the big league and his big league opportunities, but also in AAA as well. The weird one was he was not the everyday catcher in AAA. Like he was almost on a timeshare. He was catching three games a week. Like, I don't know if you've got a top 100 prospect and Herrera is a top 100 prospect. That guy should be playing four or five days a week, like five. If he's a catcher. Five, if he's a position player that is a non-catcher. Four, if he is a catcher behind the dish. And then probably one is a DH and then a true sit day, the other one. But he was like actually playing three, maybe four days a week. So what I caught, it's interesting you bring that up, is in the beginning of the season, he was catching a ton. Like every, almost every single game, seeing a lot of action. And then I think they wanted to kind of slow him down a little bit just to kind of manage the workload. I think that might be what it was. Also, he was going back and forth a little bit, but I'm looking at the game logs and you just start to see more DH, more DH, more DH. And then by the end of the year, DHing a lot more. I do wonder if that was maybe part of preserving the workload because he did play that pretty much full triple A season with some action in the big leagues. You have it in front of you. Like how many games would he have played in total last year? Was it 95 to 100? He played 13 games in the big leagues, 83 in AAA. So that's 96. Yeah. 
it's kind of interesting that he didn't get a little bit more run, but I think, I guess with young catchers, they tend to kind of monitor that workload a little bit. And he did come off of, yeah, I I think it's interesting, but I I do think that's more of a testament to them probably just trying to manage the workload because when he was on the field, man, he was awesome. You you combine the numbers. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. No, I be, I was going to say the numbers are damn near perfect in AAA. This guy, 83 AAA games, hit 300, like 297 with a 451 OBP. He had a 951 OPS. He slugged 500. He was 11 for 13 in the stolen base department. And he only punched out two more times than he walked. In 83 games, he punched out 77 times. He walked 75 times. Like he was an amazing offensive catcher. And we know that he can defend back there. Yeah. And and that's the interesting thing. And the kind of the question was offensively, how is it going to come together? And, and this was one of my favorite dives I did when we were doing the top 100 list is Herrera was kind of a rough year in 22 because we were hoping it would all come together. I know it wasn't statistically the worst year, but a lot of the underlying data didn't look great. And I think that's part of the reason why the Cardinals were a little bit worried. But he we talked about Jordan Walker and some of the adjustments that he made in AAA. And I know that they really like their their hitting instruction there in AAA. And, and it really kind of communicates well they communicate very well between triple a and, and the big leagues and walker obviously made some big adjustments there i wrote a whole piece on that on just baseball.com that you can go check out but herrera i'll probably put a thread together soon on it because i talked about it in the write-up he made some adjustments because he was hit putting the ball on the ground too much and he was pulling the ball way too much he really struggled with that premature weight ship forward that we always talk about right that power leak forward and was able to minimize that and make some adjustments to improve his swing path and and Minimize the weak contact. Once he cut down on the weak contact, we always saw flashes of 110, 111 in terms of the exit velocities, but there was just too much weak contact and it was giving him an average exit velocity of 84. You shouldn't have that big of a discrepancy between your max and your average. That's why we look at 90th and his 90th percentile jumped monumentally from 2022 to 2023. He had 103 mile per hour, 90th percentile exit velocity in 2022. That jumped to 107 miles per hour in 2023. He cut his ground ball rate by 7%. He doubled his home run to fly ball rate and he produced a new max at 113. He improved in every single power indicator. We knew that the bat to ball skills were always good enough, but just adjusting his setup, making some changes with his load to allow him to get in the back hip and stay there, was all he really needed. And that was what they kind of worked on with Walker similarly. So he would also kind of get spinny. He'd leave with his front side, making some adjustments to kind of help him stay closed and certain cues. Every player needs a different cue to kind of get them where they need to be and stay there long enough and maintain direction. And the Cardinals are really good at helping these guys find it case by case. I mean, we've seen it with so many different hitters that have found it their own way. And they did that with Herrera. And I think the offensive improvements really have me sold is he can be an everyday catcher and an above average one at the big league level. I hope they work out a trade somewhere. We're going to do playing GM uh, for, for the Marlins at some point. And I'm going to try to workshop a trade there where Herrera could maybe get moved to the Marlins for some pitching, because I think he can be an above average catcher every day. I think we initially floated that in like August, right? We, we initially placed that seed. It was, I want to see Von Herrera in a Marlins uniform. Um, I will say, though, throw away the other suitors hat and just put on your Cardinals hat right now. Okay. What do you think the best version of the Cardinals lineup looks like? Does it have Yvonne Herrera in it? I mean, Wilson Contreras was really good at the end of the year. Yes, he was. And you look at the DH role, right? And it's going to be probably filled at times by Jordan Walker. Probably going to be filled at times by 
Nolan Gorman, depending on who you want to put in the infield. But I would say with the way that it looks right now, man, it's tough because Brendan Donovan's probably going to play second. If Brendan Donovan plays second, then Gorman's going to DH or vice versa. I think the best version at this point is probably Herrera on the bench, which is a disservice to him, right? Like he, I think he's ready for every day at bats at the big league level. So that's where it's really hard because you're not going to clog up the DH spot further with Contreras moving away from catcher. He was serviceable last year. And then again, really got better and better offensively. I think it looks best with, with him not in the starting nine, which is why he should probably get moved. I disagree. I actually think the best version of the Cardinals is with Yvonne Herrera catching. I think a lot of people forget that Wilson Contreras has about 40 big league games in the corner outfield spots under his belt. I think that the best version of the Cardinals lineup on opening day does not include some of this outfield surplus. I don't know if it includes Dylan Carlson. I mean, shit, O'Neill's gone. Move Carlson to Edmund just plays center full time. You've got Walker and Wright. You've got Wilson Contreras bouncing between catching three days a week, playing left a day a week, DHing for a day a week. And then you've got four games a week, three games a week for Yvonne Herrera to catch. So you're saying screw it on the on that on the corner outfield D. Uh, yeah, why not? Like the rest of the defense is already so good. Like you've got Nolan Arenado, you've got Mason Wynn who throws the ball 100 miles an hour, Tommy Edmond, Brendan Donovan. Like all these guys are really good at defense. I'm okay if the run to the litter is giving me an 810 OPS in left field. That's what Wilson does. And I will say, I probably think, especially if, if Herrera makes a, a smooth transition into con- consistently handling the staff, and it's all a lot of new pitchers. So it's guys that Contreras is going to have to get to know as well. Herrera could probably give you better defense. So if Herrera is giving you better defense, at least you're getting an upgrade there behind the dish as well. And, and obviously that's an important spot for them too. I don't think that's crazy either. I I wonder where they're going to go with it though. And, and it sounds like they're probably going to roll with something closer to what you said. I don't know if they move Contreras to the outfield, but it seems like they very much want to have Herrera still involved as, you know, we just haven't heard him really floated in, in anything. Um, I think we've heard more, about uh, their third string catcher than than anybody else in terms of potentially getting moved. So that that might be a, that might end up being kind of what we see there. So regardless, I hope he gets pretty consistent at bats because I think the guy's ready and maybe it can help kind of preserve Contreras. He's not getting any younger. You got several more years committed to him. He's going to be 32 almost by the time the season starts. Maybe getting him off his legs, you know, a couple times a week might might be helpful. And I agree, there's some outfielders that is somewhat of a surplus that I think Herrera could even be a better offensive option than I, I think if it all comes together, it could be a better offensive option than Dylan Carlson as well. So also a guy that you can plug in offensively and, and give you some stuff. Number seven, checking in at number seven is, I, you know, I made the prospect fatigue comment. It, this guy would be the runner up, right? <laughs> Edgar Caro. Uh, yes. Getting moved always contributes to that as well. Uh, but Edgar Caro, Chicago White Sox, I still can't believe that the angels moved him for a half-hearted effort at, you know, whatever they thought that they could do at the end of the season last year. Caro, I think really got a bad rap with the first half quote unquote struggles. And even these quote unquote struggles were a one Oh five WRC plus and double a as a 20 year old. So like, okay, sign me up for those struggles. There's some mixed reviews on the catching 
And I, I do ultimately think he's probably a fringy catcher when it's all said and done, but he does have a good arm. He's good enough to limit the run game. I think that's something that at the end of the day is pretty important. He's not egregious with the pass balls. I think that the blocking has gotten good enough. The receiving isn't exactly where you want it to be, but again, he's 20 as well. And I thought he looked a lot better after the trade. I know he ended up with a very similar stat line, but remember that was kind of after the tack balls, after a lot of guys kind of either stay in double A and end up performing better or the top prospects are brought up. But in his 31 games with Chicago at the same level in the same league, 277, 366, 393. So started to slug a little bit more too. I think that was the question, right? It, it, that was kind of the issue with, or at least the, the criticism we saw was, he had 17 home runs in low A in a hitter-friendly environment. Now he only has three through 70 games in double A. Where's the power? Well, he walked more than he struck out. And I still saw some flashes of doubles power. Like how much do we need power from a switch hitting catcher who puts bat on ball and has a fantastic approach? If there's, if there's minimal whiff there, I don't think you need to see power. And I'm not going to say at all, but I think six homers in 101 games is enough. If you've got a guy that's walking damn near as much as he's punching out is a switch hitter uh, and is playing a high level of defense when he is, what, four years younger than the average hitter at that level. Um, I would ask you the question, like, what makes Carroll a better prospect than Yvonne Herrera? But I think I know the answer. He's putting up solid numbers offensively. He's playing good defense at a level a step below him, and he's four years younger. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the answer. Because my biggest thing is the defense is still a little rough around the edges. That's fine. He's athletic. We know that he's got the goods. He's got a good arm. So he's got three, four years to refine his his efforts behind the dish. Uh, I think that will happen. And then offensively, we saw him tap into more power after the trade. Three home runs and again, less than half the games. The EVs are solid enough, right? His, his 90th percentile exit velocity is right at average, maybe just a hair below. And when you make contact the amount he does, which is, you know, I'd say, well above average on the fringe of plus, and you chase below 20% of the time as a switch hitting catcher, I, I really think people were too quick to just say, ah, eh, it uh, looks like he, he can't handle you know the tougher levels. He skipped IA. Remember that? Yeah. He skipped IA. They liked... LA, the LA Angels, for whatever reason, like the, the staff better in double A. We've seen more teams do this. Maybe not quite Project Birmingham, but they liked him better in double. So this guy also skipped high A and went into a tacked ball league immediately. So going from low A to the upper levels with an experimental ball and still holding your own. The only thing I really want to see on the offensive side is hit the ball in the air a little bit more. Uh, 50% ground ball rate that kind of went up as the year went on. He's a flat swinger, though, short, punchy levers, which is why he makes so much contact. You're not always going to get a ton of, of loft. That's fine. He's going to make a lot of contact. He's going to hit a lot of doubles. He's going to walk. Starts hit the ball a little bit harder as he maybe fills out a tad more, not a ton of projection in the frame, but he can get a little bit stronger as he matures. He can hit you 10, 15 home runs. He can walk at a high clip. He can hit doubles, and he can play catcher and switch hit. That's a really good player. Next up, number six. And I thought Kyle Teal with the Boston Red Sox. Well, first of all, you and I were just pounding at the table when we were doing our live, our live stream of the draft. How is this guy falling? How is he falling? How is he falling? How is he falling? He ends up falling right into the Red Sox lap at what? 14? Was 14. it 14? 15? I think it was 14. I mean, I can't believe that he fell there. Teal, UVA kid, really athletic for a catcher. 
definitely sticking. Good feel to hit. It's a little unorthodox, high effort swing, some moving parts, kind of turns his head sideways when he swings, but it works. And the numbers don't lie. I think the pairing of some unorthodox swing, you know, mechanics and kind of, I would say less of a track record as some of the other top 10 projected picks, right? Like it, it kind of all came together for him in that junior season. There were some ups and downs for him collegiately relative to his peers. Yeah, I think that's what caused him to fall, but I still think it's crazy given the goods that he has and the swing that he has from the left side. Dude, I mean, the second best conference in college baseball, he hit 410 with 13 homers in 65 games. He he pretty much, I don't want to say like single-handedly, but he pretty much carried Virginia to what a super regional this year to a national seed. Didn't they host their super? Like I think so, yeah. I mean, they were one of the better programs in America this year. And yes, Virginia always has a little bit of fanfare. But Teal was the reason like you could argue that Teal was the MVP of college baseball this year. He didn't win the Dick Hauser, um, you know, most outstanding. I think Cruz, Skeens, Lankford were more outstanding. But in terms of value, I, it's hard to look past a catcher with an 1130 OPS in 65 games. Especially when you're as athletic as he is. Right. Like yeah. you've seen some of the. The video, uh, you've seen the way he can snap throw. I, I, we've talked about it a couple months ago. Like Chris Clegg, uh, who does a great job getting the ballparks and everything, he got that video of Teal like going down like a shortstop and snapping it over to second base. It's just like you can't learn that shit. Like you just you can't learn that. It's like quarterbacks when we talk about like Mahomes, right? And and Mahomes makes these throws, and you're like, man, certain guys can't make those throws. Obviously, he's not. Patrick Mahomes, a catchers, but at the, the point being, he's capable of making some throws that are just not normal uh, to be able to snap from that angle and, and do the things that he does. So imagine as he continues to just get more comfortable with the fundamentals, his athleticism is going to shine through even further. Uh, but I thought the way he limited the running game professionally was outstanding. I thought the way that, you know, he has improved receiving wise is, is really encouraging. And uh, by all accounts, great makeup has all the goods that you want in terms of, of calling a game comes from a baseball family and, and it all kind of shines through offensively. He was awesome in his professional debut, 26 games. If you include the complex and, and everything that he did, 363, yeah. 482, 495 slash line. Again, a ton of contact in the zone, 88% zone contact that carried over from college, pretty much the same level there too. Usually you see more whiff doesn't chase very patient. The one thing I want to see is a little bit more strength. You look at the, the videos you see him in the box he's wiry you know it, it's he's not a a built guy and you don't want you don't want him to lose mobility you don't want him to to lose what he what makes him so good which is that agility the ability to kind of move and throw from different angles and all that stuff but he could probably put on a little bit of strength and with his high effort swing the way he's able to maintain controlled aggression when you can swing hard but still have control of your body cuz he swings hard and he doesn't break down physically that gets me excited because I'm like, if he adds a little bit more strength, that power can get to even average, maybe slightly above. And all of a sudden now you got an above average power bat from the left side with above average hit and good defensive skills. Holy crap. That's one of the best catching prospects in the game. So that's where I think he can be. If he can just add a little bit of strength, the EVs in those 26 games, small sample, 100 mile per hour, 90th percentile. That's a bit low. And that's why we didn't see a ton of power. That's the one thing I'm kind of looking at. It's a little bit more refinement, like most of these guys catching wise, but then also 
add a little bit of strength and maybe a little bit more impact will be there uh, to at least project average power because the hit tool is well above. Okay, percent chance he debuts in 2024. Oh, nah. I'd say low. I, I know we want to say low, but the Red Sox, it seems like Teoscar Hernandez is headed there. I don't know what's going on on that front. I like it's bizarre. He's liking tweets right now of like Photoshop him photoshopped into Red Sox jerseys. I don't know what any of this shit means. I saw the report, then I saw that it wasn't real, whatever. But it seems like they're going after people to fill in that lineup or fill in that rotation. They are not catchers. And their catching situation right now above Teal, who finished the year with 10 games, hitting over 300 in double A, is Connor Wong and Reese McGuire at the big league level. And then a 35-year-old Roberto Perez coming off of injury, if I'm not mistaken. And Mark Colesbury. Nothing is stopping him if he hits. I mean, I don't think that's crazy. You make a good point. Wong was fine. McGuire was okay. And you combine those two guys, you have not the worst catching tandem in baseball. You probably have like a 20th ranked. You think that's not the worst? No, definitely far from it. Far from it. I I think there's there's some really bad catching situations out there with the Marlins. The Marlins are terrible. Horrible back there. But I will say it's not good. And if they're not getting enough from there, it might be possible. I'll give you, you, you bump my percentage up definitely a fair bit. I'm yeah. still going to say 35%. That's actually higher than I was going to go. I was going to say 30, but I like 35. Just because he finished in double and it wasn't just like, hey, play two games in the postseason and double because the high A season's over. Like he, he got a handful of games there. You got and 40 he play really appearances. Good, and he's going to yeah. be in big league camp. They're going to fall in love with him just with the way that he plays the game. It's it's an infectious. And I could see the the Red Sox brass getting very excited about him and maybe pitchers enjoy working with him. And all of a sudden, like he's going to be with the big league team. And I think that could really help. So probably depends on camp. I was going to say thirty three point three, 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 three. But I bumped it a little bit higher. I'll say, yeah, a one in three chance, though, overall, that that he gets a, a look there. And I think it's more dependent also the, on how bad those guys are, because if Teal plays out of his mind, then sure, he could force his way up there. If those guys are playing average, they might not want to throw Teal into the fire because it is so difficult to be a catcher and and make that leap, uh, both from handling a staff and offensively. But yeah, I, I'll say 33% if he shows enough. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll upline to 40% for the sake of presenting the counter argument as to why it can be somewhat likely. I'll be honest, I was going to come in at about 20 until you sold me on that. So it shows you how arbitrary these numbers are. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We're going to get into the top five, which starts with Harry Ford of the Mariners in a moment. But before that, a quick break. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, top five time. Here we go. And it's Harry Ford of the Seattle Mariners. Ford, man, like it's just every time I'm I'm waiting for him to either explode or slow down, neither happens, which is a good thing. And I wouldn't even say a bad thing. I'd say it's mostly a good thing. Uh, there's There hasn't been anything one way or another. It's mostly been linear progression. We say usually with prospects, 
progression is almost anything but linear. But with Harry Ford, it's yeah. been pretty linear. It just feels like he's done what you expect or a little bit more at each stop. He looks great when you watch. There are some small concerns that he hasn't totally hedged out. But at the end of the day, you look at him and you say, this is a really talented 20-year-old catcher who has just about every opportunity to be a big impact for, I think, the the Mariners in one way or another in a couple of years. We'll, we'll see you know, uh, what their catching situation is with Cal Rowley and whatever. But whether it's the Mariners or another team, if he gets traded, he's going to be a really good trade chip. You just look at him and you say, there's so many different ways that he can impact the game as one of the most athletic catchers we have in the minor leagues that I can't wait to see what it all looks like when it all comes together. And I think we're getting closer and closer to understanding what the full profile looks like, even though there hasn't been that like burst or that explosion where he takes the the league by storm wherever he stops. He also has not really struggled much either. Is that ever going to come is my question. Like, does he have more than 15 homers in the tank. I don't think so. To be honest, I, I don't. Okay, so that like, was my that question. Sounds before. like a negative. Yeah. It is it though. Like, how much do we want out of this guy? What? And that's that. That's the challenge. Is like I've been trying to figure out what does Harry Ford look like when it's all done. Like, what? What? What do we want? What are we hoping for the finished product of Harry Ford to be? And, I, and the more I'm watching this guy. The more I'm seeing of him, it's I think he makes the big leap defensively, which is what you, you really want to see, because you know I don't think he's going to be enough of an offensive force to really carry it that way. So he makes the big leap defensively. And then you just see the speed and the um, base skills and everything else kind of shine through. And I think that's what it ultimately looks like, because the power like he's pretty maxed out frame wise. He's he's a stocky. I wouldn't I wouldn't say stocky. He's just a strong filled out 510. Five, nine, probably, which is probably generous on the listing. He does hit the ball in the air with consistency, which helps a ton. And that could help him eke out maybe closer to 15 homers. But the EVs are, you know, below average, I'd say slightly between below average and average. So it's around a 40 grade. And he does maximize that by hitting in the air. But the one concern I have on top of that is the bat to ball isn't quite as good as you'd want to see for a guy that doesn't have a ton of pop, right? The, the zone contact rates are, right around 79, 80%. The overall contact rate at about 73%. Both of those are a hair below average. But what really helps him offensively, he's one of the most patient hitters in the lower minors, 15% chase rate. And he hits breaking stuff pretty decent. That's where it's kind of hard to figure out exactly where he lines up. And I think you could make the case that you know Kyle Teal could have the edge on him, but Harry Ford, not even 21 yet, with the athleticism, probably carries a little bit more, uh, I think, prospect value, especially with the way he can get on base. I agree with you. I think limited power output, I guess you want to call it limited. 15 is still good from a catcher. Don't get it wrong. Like the, the problem is the guy that's up there in Seattle right now hits 30, but he swings and misses a lot. Helps that he's a good defender too, but I, I think you're hoping you are getting a more athletic, less explosive Cal Raleigh here. Yeah. Because um, Raleigh, his game is explosion. His game is the 100-meter dash. It's homers, it's getting runners, and it's striking out a good bit, too. With Ford, he's running the, he's running the one in the Olympics with, um, with all the obstacles. Steeplechase. Yeah. He's running steeplechase. He's, like, jumping into the puddles and, and weird shit. But um, the best version of Ford is probably 10 to 15 homers, 20 bags, 
walk close to a hundred times and play good defense. And dude, that's fun. That's a fringe top 10 catcher in baseball mm-hmm. and unique, which I love. I, I, I like guys that it's push Gabby the Moreno. I like guys that push the boundary of the position. Yeah. Moreno is probably yeah. more hit, but he doesn't walk at all. So if you look at, you know, at the on-base percentage by the end of the year, they're probably going to be pretty similar. Uh, and, and that's what kind of stands out to me is even if he's a 250 hitter, okay, he hit 257 last year in high A. He got on base at a 410 clip. Is that going to translate the same way at the big league level? No. Okay, he hits a 250 hitter at the big league level. He's still getting on base at a 360, 370 clip if that approach translates the way we think it can. And then again, the thing that I think really helps him is even though the EVs are, again, like fringe average, he's still able to get the most out of his power because of how frequently he hits the ball in the air. And I do think that even in the big leagues, that'll turn into 10, 15, maybe in a good year, he could sneak out 20. You never know you look at Isak Paredes. His EVs are not fantastic at all, but he lifts the ball. He backspins and he just generates carry. There's guys like that. And as Harry Ford continues to learn himself as a hitter, you know, still could get a little bit more just naturally stronger as you just become a, a, a man at 24, 25 years old, like it could translate in a different way. I do think that it's not impossible that he sneaks out 20. And then the the, the speed is just a really cool asset too. to, to be able to steal 20 plus bags as a catcher is, is a really interesting mold. And, and I do wonder if they try to get him some reps at other positions as well. And, and to have some sort of that Dalton Varsho, which I know he doesn't catch as much anymore really at all, but maybe he can be that hybrid guy that, that plays other positions. They haven't really done that at all yet, but it could be something that, could be an option down the road, especially if the Mariners hold on to him and he's blocked because then he could be the guy that spells rally a couple times a week and then maybe plays another position too, or rally slides to the DH spot and, and they split it up because he has been getting banged up. Cal rally has over the last couple of years. So, and maybe they will want to try to keep him healthy. Uh, but I think for just too dynamic, too much explosion in terms of, of the quick twitch and, and speed and things that I think will translate into him being a really, really good catcher as he continues to, develop and refine some of the things there and maybe needs to strengthen his arm a little bit. We'll see if that happens, but I just think there's too much athleticism. There's probably the better word uh, to, to not have him as a top five catching prospect in the game. Where would you like to see him get additional reps defensively? You know, that's a great question. Center, center is the fun answer. Yeah. Um, for me, I think second base is super valuable and like we've got, Andy tried it for a little bit at the lower levels. Mm-hmm. Didn't Moreno try it for a minute at the lower levels? I don't know. I think Moreno did try it a little bit when they were trying to figure out what the heck their, their plan was with their three catchers in, in, in Toronto. Um, and and I, he's more athletic than than both those guys. Yeah. Moreno like Moreno's a freak it. athlete, but in terms of just being able to like move and and I think just actions wise, second or or center, I think could could both be options that I'd be very interested in seeing. I, I do think that if you don't have those those fundamentals, those hands, you know, just just the, the actions, that it could be easier to learn an outfield spot. But heck, yeah. maybe even left could make sense. Whereas speed plays, his arm is fine enough, and it works out there too. I I don't know if they'll do that, but it's hard because you don't want to take away from the reps right now too, right? You want him to get as many reps behind the dish as possible. Uh, but at the same time, you want to be able to figure out where he can play at the big league level, I think they might start to have that conversation this year as he gets his first taste of double A. He'll get his first taste of double A. If he does follow the trajectory that he's been on with his time in Seattle, he will spend the entire year in double A. And then I think you do have to start thinking about his big league impact and implications in 2025. 
And that provides another year of clarity on the Raleigh front. Like we've already heard the drama around Cal Raleigh in Seattle, and there should be no drama around a guy who's pre-R. But as we get closer to a guy like that hitting the open market, I, I think you start to get a better idea of, hey, is Raleigh a guy that's here and he's catching for the next six years? Or is it time to move on to the young kid? Yeah. And I think that's a decision they're probably trying to iron out now as they maybe talk about trades for pieces that can help them now while still keeping the future in mind. Because at the same time, you know, you don't want to trade your contingency plan if you're not going to keep Cal Rally. So it'll be really fun and, and interesting to see how they handle it. The last thing I'll say from a swing mechanic standpoint, I just love the way that he gets into his lower half. I love how smooth and simple his moves are. His hands barely move. It's just a little little waggle for timing and to stay loose, a toe tap. And you really see the athleticism in the box with the way he's able to hold his backside and, and really repeat those mechanics. So I think the hit tool will continue to come along too. Uh, and that could turn him into a really nice, well-rounded player if it all comes together. Number four. And this is another player that I'm very excited to talk about in the top 100 list and all that good stuff. But again, I feel like when we got into the top five, you could probably move any of Teal, Ford and rushing. But I think ultimately this is where it settles. And then when we get to the top three, it's it's almost, I think, clear, clear cut. Do you yeah. think Dalton rushing of the Los Angeles Dodgers could have been interchangeable with some of these other guys? Because there is the defensive questions here relative to Ford and Teal. But at the same time, rushing's offensive ability, I just think is far ahead of these other two with not enough defensive questions to cloud him or, or put him outside of the top five. Yeah. I think they're all interchangeable. Um, I would say that rushing doesn't fall into the last spot uh, because of what he can do in terms of patience and in terms of power. Like that's what we're looking for when it comes to a stocky hitter in major league baseball. Now um, he's not going to swipe bags like Ford. We mentioned that Ford is unique when you want I don't know, like the best version of a catcher offensively without dreaming on Adley Rutschman or prime JT Real Muto. This is probably what that looks like. And it's damn near 400 OBP threat for 20 to 25 homers and just a strong, overwhelming dude. And that's what rushing is. I it's it's one of my favorite offensive profiles, like because Look, of course, I'd love every guy to have elite contact rates and hit the ball really hard and and never chase. That yeah. that sounds great. That's Barry Bonds. But you know when it's when you're within the realm of possibility, and usually one's got to give and the other's not going to be as proficient or whatever it may be. When we're looking at a guy that yeah, you got to palette some with. I think he balances everything really well. You've got above average exit velocities and a really smooth swing from the left side that he just repeats so well it's lofty meaning that you know it's geared for pull side lift but the other thing that i love is yeah i look at guys geared for pull side lift and then I, I the first thing i look at is how do they hit breaking stuff how do they really hit secondaries because a lot of guys that are geared for pull side lift they're going to leave change-ups they're going to swing over breaking balls and and they may just roll over too much on on stuff on the outer half rushing drives balls in the air still on the outer half he hit breaking balls pretty well overall. Uh, I would say actually very well overall. And he doesn't chase. So really, that was the first thing I looked at. And I'm like, OK, that's good to see. If it's middle in, he doesn't miss it. He punishes it. It's pull side. It's gone. But when it's middle away, he's either still able to pull it 
in the air with authority, which is something that you actually want to see guys to be able to do, or he goes to center with authority. When you balance that, so average contact rates, really good power in terms of it's above average raw, but he gets into every ounce of that with his just nuanced approach and ability to hit. And then you chase at a 15% clip. It's just such a safe offensive profile. If he's an average defensive catcher, it's going to be really good. And we look at Will Smith. Now, Will Smith's a better bat-to-ball guy and, and just probably just a better bat all around. But Will Smith, we had questions defensively, right? But he was good enough to where the offense carried him. It's rare. you got to be a really good hitter. I think rushing in a different way is that good. Offense carried him, and you were able to palette the growing pains of the catching process. I think that's exactly what rushing can be. And by year three, he's fantastic offensively, maybe one of the best offensive catchers in the game. And then the glove gets to the point where it's at least average or close to it. And he's still considered one of the better catchers in the game. Yeah, I think rushing was probably the last of the non outliers. And Smith turned himself into an outlier, I think, by getting better year over year. And now Will Smith, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but he probably grades out to an above average catcher. Like he's not just average defensively. This guy has made the jump from below average to slightly below to average to now, I think, slightly above average defensively, or maybe even just flat out above average. Rushing probably doesn't have that ability. I think the guys in the top three do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like he may have, aside from the number one guy, he may have more pop than anybody else on this list. Does he not? Yeah, no, I think I think so. You know, the number two guy, you could maybe project more pop down the yeah, line. Like, it, but who <laughs> Not knows? To give it away, but that's so far away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's so far away. I would say I would say that's one hundred percent correct. I mean, EV wise, Herrera's probably is you know, is a little bit higher, but I have way more confidence in Rushing's ability to consistently get into that. Uh, yeah. By the way, I pulled up Will Smith's. Definitely would I would say he's slightly above average now because I know it's not the end all be all, but when you have above average blocks above average when you look at um you know the, the catching position that always helps i think that's one of savant's better stats with with catching he has gotten so much better at limiting the run game the framing is his biggest weakness and that's fine with me if framing is your biggest weakness in this game now and the way we're probably heading that's fine and it's not egregiously bad it's just slightly below average so yeah i'd say he's slightly above average catcher at this point and even if rushing is an average catcher it's gonna all play real well I, I want to see more video. I got to just honestly break down a little bit more from the receiving and blocking standpoint. But I also think it's unfair to, to to analyze rushing because he was so banged up this year. He was playing through, I think, concussion symptoms for a while. He was concussed, went like 0 for 20 something. And, you know, I just I wonder when I'm watching certain games, you know, what am I getting there? So I might go watch some early, you know, in the season framing and defense there before we update the top 100 just to get a little bit of a better idea. But the reason why I still think he's comfortably here is even if it doesn't totally, totally work out catching wise, he's still good enough to be part-time catcher. And the offense is just so darn good. Yeah. Number three mentioned him a little bit earlier long. One of my favorite catching prospects in the game, Jefferson Caro of the Milwaukee Brewers. It was an ugly finish for Caro. I can't lie. It was an ugly finish, which was surprising because he was in double a he's in that Southern league. He was ripping the league apart through the first half. And then he was one of the few guys that actually struggled more when they uh, switched to the regular old muddied up baseballs. I I think it was just one of those things where maybe 
the season kind of got long for him. He he lost a little bit of, of that explosion. And, you know, he's an aggressive hitter. I think pitchers you know, being in that league all year round, a lot of pitchers kind of knowing him well, started to really use that against him. And by the end of the season, it, it was it was a rough finish. One of the best offensive catchers in the first half. And then the second half, like I said, just just a little bit uglier. That said, even with the worst numbers, he didn't strike out a ton through the slump down the stretch of the season. The batted ball data was still pretty good. It just seemed like some bad batted ball luck, a little bit of just of of, of a funk and maybe just a longer season kind of getting to him and pitchers just being familiar with him. I'm not overly worried about the, the bad finish because he still posted if you include the postseason games and everything, the 780 OPS you know, over the course of the season, 16 home runs. You could argue that he's as good of a defensive catcher as we're going to talk about today uh, in terms of yeah. his blocking, his arm, his athleticism. And oh, by the way, he was 20 years old last year in double A. So very young. But I think he's one of the most well-rounded catchers, period, if not the most well-rounded catcher that we're going to talk about on this episode. So in his minor league career, he's cut down 32% of would-be base stealers, which is really impressive at the lower levels of the minor leagues. Oh, Upper yeah. levels, like, you know, they, that's on par with the good ones. That's not like, you know, setting the world on fire, but at the lower levels, that truly is setting the world on fire. He is one of the better, I don't know, base runner, base running inhibitors that we've got in baseball. Um, it seems by all accounts that he is, he's probably the closest thing that we've got on this list, along with the guy we're about to talk about in terms of gold glove potential behind mm-hmm. the plate. So we're talking about the best defender that we've talked about so far. And you're clearly disappointed with the way he ended his season. You mentioned a 780 OPS while keeping the punch outs in check as a 20 year old hitter spending the entire year in double A. Damn, that sucks. I'm out. <laughs> I, I know. Great. I, yeah. It is. I I just, I expect so much of him. I'm like, I feel like a father that's just unreasonable to their child. Like he's doing pretty Which well. Which is why he's a top three catching prospect in the game. And a top 25, you know, for us at just baseball. But it's like, you know, it's like your son comes home and brings home an A minus. Why didn't you get an A plus? Like, I feel like that's what I'm doing to Jefferson Carroll right now, which is not fair, but you know, just, he set the bar so high for himself in that first half. And again, I just think it was a little bit of the chase rates starting to rear their head. He, he chases at about a 35% clip. That's something that he doesn't have to cut down, but if he wants to reach his you know, offensive ceiling, I think needs to cut down because there is an above average field to hit. There is comfortably above average power. I think it's borderline plus pop uh, in terms of some of the flashes that you see. You see 111s, a 90th percentile over 105. Uh, I, I think that he could easily hit 25 home runs. He's a good, good athlete. I, I'm telling you, one of my favorite guys to watch maneuver behind the dish. And you mentioned cutting down runners at the rate that he has. Not only is it hard with the, the rules being implemented earlier down there with guys just able to get such good jumps on pitchers who have no idea how to hold runners on and just it kind of being a free for all on the bases in the minor leagues. Like it's it's rare to see guys throw out more than 30 percent of base. Dealers. It's rare to see guys throw out more than 25 at the minor league levels because catchers are, or pitchers are so bad at holding runners on there. Um, I think he's as dynamic as they come catching wise. And I'm excited to see what he does. I assume they start him in triple. And this is a guy that should definitely get an opportunity at the big league level within the first couple months. But I guess I ask you, how much do you think the the struggle at the end of the year maybe works against him with you know, some of the challenges swing decision wise uh, in terms of of maybe when they'll get him up to the big leagues? Because now you have William Contreras, who, by the way, is is now a good defender. And that's the crazy yeah. thing about it. Is these guys can hit if they're good enough to where 
big league teams are willing to give them opportunities and and they're not a liability behind the dish. You got to see these guys through because when they're good athletes like William Contreras, they can just maximize that so quickly. So that's why it's tough to grade some of these guys or rank them because Caro is a better defender. But that's the really interesting thing. So, you know, some of these other guys are maybe better hitters and you're like, oh, well, what if they make the, the leap defensively? But I think ultimately when you have the whole package there, I mean, this is a guy that could be really good in all facets of the game. Yeah, I agree. I do think that Caro's abilities only have so much say in what happens to him in 2024. I think William Contreras kind of controls what happens at the catching position in Milwaukee in 24. It's not like they're going to move William Contreras to left like they did in Atlanta to get, you know, Darno more run behind the plate. He was a five and a half win player behind the plate. He was the top war accumulator in all of baseball among catchers. So we're not talking about a guy that is, you know, a three win player behind the dish and drops to a 2.8 win player and left. We're talking about a five and a half win player and the second best catcher in baseball this year, probably behind only Adley Rutschman. So it's tough because I'm actually starting to view William Contreras as like one of those franchise cornerstone pieces for exactly. Milwaukee. He really and is. I wasn't doing that 365 days ago. And I think that's almost part of the reason why I guess I'll kind of rescind what I said about I'd like to see him in the first couple of months. Maybe you just give this guy the full year in AAA and there's no rush. You can cite the, the slow finish to the year. And at that point, he can really work on the approach. He can continue to refine some of the, the smaller things catching wise, work with some big league pitchers there that might be going back and forth. And then they'll figure out what the plan is there. But it's interesting because Caro is just one of those guys. We talk about other positions, whatever. So much of Caro's value comes from being a phenomenal defensive catcher. And now Contreras being such a good defensive catcher. It's trouble in paradise. We'll cross that bridge, I guess, when we get there. But uh, I guess Caro, they could maybe use what they have at the position to give him a little bit more time to get seasoned. He still is very young. He'll be 21, you know, the entire season. I think that's probably what they do is I wouldn't even be shocked if they start him again in double with the way he finished might not be the craziest thing in the world with a quick bump up to triple a, if he shows well, knowing that, you know, they have plenty of time here. Yeah. I don't think they should, because I think if we learned anything from last year, triple a may actually be easier than double a, um, especially in the Southern league where everybody can just spin whatever the hell they want. I don't know what the process is with the tack balls this year, but tack balls or not pitching talent may just be better in double a than it is in triple a. Yeah, and I'd like to see him kind of against more advanced pitching, see how that how he can continue to improve that approach. Advanced, like subdued stuff, but acumen-wise, like AAA pitchers are better acumen-wise than AA pitchers, but AA stuff, I think, is as good, if not better, than AAA and, stuff. And I don't think the stuff's the problem for him, too, which is to that point. Right. Like, he, he hits breaking balls really well. He hits velocity well. Let's see how you do when a guy's nibbling at the corners and getting you to expand something that he does a bit too much of. So I think that'll be a really good spot for him to get plenty of at-bats. If he's slow out of the gate, who cares? And he can really fail without pressure and build off of that. If he doesn't fail, great. Uh, and that's something that I'm definitely hoping he does not do. Yep. A guy that definitely was pushed quickly uh, and, and probably got to double A way earlier than he should have, but who cares, I guess. Uh, Ethan Salas of the San Diego Padres checks in at number two. And... I mean, dude, some would probably say Salas is the best catching prospect in baseball because I've seen people, you know, want to float him as arguably the the one of the five best prospects in the sport. He's tough to rank because 
I see people give him a lot of credit for getting to double A. I think there's a lot of things you can give him credit for. I think that's the one that you kind of can't. I think you can give him credit for playing in a big league spring training game. I think you can give him credit for playing in low A and succeeding there. I think you can give him credit to getting promoted for getting promoted to high A. I think double A was just one of those weird things that they just decided to do. And ultimately, like, was it an accomplishment? Did he earn his way up to double? Like maybe with the way he carries himself, but not really, not really. So that's not to take away what he did last year. What he did last year was absolutely remarkable. It was borderline unprecedented. I would say probably unprecedented. He, as a 16 slash 17 year old, put up above average numbers in low A started to show some good things defensively. It's a work in progress, but he's got all the goods to be a good catcher and then got up to high A and, you know, competed. And then of course gets that bump up to double A where yes, the numbers weren't pretty, but he still didn't look like a fish out of water, which I think says a lot, <laughs> you know, as a 17 year old up at that level, he's the wonderkin catching prospect. He's really like, we haven't really seen anything like this behind the dish. And that's why he's a top 25 prospect for us in baseball. But I got a lot of people pushing back at me saying that he was way too low on our final update at 25. And, you know, maybe maybe he is. But at the same time, I'm just it's hard to know what it's all going to look like at this stage. What I can tell you is his field of hit is is remarkable for a 17 year old. His approach is remarkable for a 17 year old. So that's why I could hear the okay, this guy's a top 10 prospect because of what he is able to already do and how slow the game is for him relative to really anybody else's age. But what if he doesn't fill out that much more? What if the defense doesn't quite come along the way that we think it can? Is he better than number one, Samuel Basayo to give that away? Like, I don't know. Basayo may not stick, but he could hit 40 homers. So it's just one of those things where it gets, it gets a little convoluted when we're trying to rank these guys. But that said, Salas is clearly and definitively to me, a top three catching prospect in the game. I think he's, probably pretty clearly number two. And I mean, to make contact at an 86% clip across every level last year to chase at a below 20% clip to do what he did defensively. Again, there's some rough around the edges aspects to him as a catcher. Okay. He he literally would would have just been learning how to drive a car last year. So like, just just to kind of put it in perspective, I do think it's all going to come along. And I do think he could ultimately be the top prospect in baseball in a couple of years. If, you know, Preller doesn't, debut him before he even gets a chance to be that. But I do think it's early and there's some things that we still need to figure out about the kid. No, I mean, there, there's no bad, like there's no bad stop for Basayo. There are now two bad stops for Ethan Salas. And I just, I wonder where he starts in 2024. And okay, like, yes, bad stop is is stretching it because they were nine games, bad two week stretch. This guy had an OPS under 500 if you combine his high A and double A numbers in 18 like, games. And which is like to be expected. But at the same time, yes, yes like, not like, yes, oh, he was in double A. Like, I would have rather see him put up numbers in low A. Yes. And just I would rather the year have those 18 more games and have a 900 OPS. Yes. I think we have a stronger argument for him being above Basayo if that happens. But he looked overmatched in high A and overmatched in double. Granted, he's two years younger than Basayo. He's 17, but Sayo's 19. So like a 19-year-old getting a double A is impressive as shit. A 17-year-old, it's, hmm, what situation forced that to happen? And the answer is A.J. Preller was being a madman. And, and I I don't know. I think we look at Basayo and say, all right, he earned that promotion, he earned that promotion, he earned that promotion. And Sal is kind of like, you know, just regurgitating what, you're, what you were saying. Like he earned the high A. 
he just didn't earn the double A. Yeah. And, and, and I when get you it. don't was- earn something and, and you struggle, like it's hard for me to say you're better than the guy that earned both. No doubt. A hundred percent. And I think part of it is because they like this, the, the coaching staff and double so many teams. Sure. There's a really big jump in the, in the coaching staff at double A. And, and if that's what helps him as such a cerebral and hardworking player, totally fine. And especially as a kid among men makes sense. But again, it's just kind of something I don't really even factor those games in. And that's why I wanted to bleed with that. Cause for me, I'm really looking at the 48 games in low A. I don't really want to look at this guy that had to, this, this kid traveling to different cities and being thrown into new environments and you know, much more advanced competition and and not succeeding. Like I kind of want to throw that out the window. So really looking at the 48 games that, that we have to look at at low A, I saw a guy that was an above average hitter for that level, which is crazy for a 17 year old. Uh, so it's the question becomes, OK, the foundation's there. You feel really good that this is a high floor guy relative to any 17 year old really we've ever seen aside from the greats. So that side of it makes it really interesting. But how much power is there? We haven't really seen him buzz anything above 105 miles an hour, 106 maybe in the exit velocity department. Is he going to, he could wind up just being more of a doubles guy. That's fine. But the bat to balls was really good in, in low a. What if he's just way more experienced than other teenagers, but it doesn't quite translate the same way in high a and double a. I don't think that's the case, but those are still answers that need to be had. You know, I think at some point, what I do love about this guy is it's a silky smooth swing from the left side. He really does already have the mechanics down where he's able to get that bat in the zone and keep it there and maintain direction so well. It's one of the things that you just don't see with young hitters. He's still able to tap into some sneaky pull side pop. Uh, We haven't seen big time EVs. Okay, yeah, he was like 16 at the start of the year. So we'll see how much pop is there. I don't see a ton of physical projection, but there's enough to where, okay, maybe he has average power or you hope maybe slightly above that. What stands out to me above all is the swing decisions. To have the the, the swing decisions that he has in terms of running a chase rate below 20%, uh, some really good takes, impressive takes, comfortable takes that I see from him. Just a really good feel for the game overall. It is surprising that he struck out, you know, as high as he did, even in low A, considering that he is patient. So maybe sometimes it was bordering on passive um, and that might be something he has to work on a little bit as well. But overall, I mean, this is a this is a special player. And to have the intangibles he has behind the dish, the framing and and receiving has honestly gotten really impressive. Catch and throw stuff's got to come along a little bit. Again, very young. And at the end of the day, though, he could be a really well-rounded catcher with tools across the board with an above average, maybe plus hit if it continues going the way that people think it can and above average to potentially plus power. It's just so early that it's really hard to, I think, rank him ahead of some other prospects, not even just catchers, just some other prospects who have showed us what they can do right now with some to dream on too. No, like it's a good place to be when you're debuting on a top catchers list in the minor leagues. As seven at a 17 year old, like point in his life where he's 17, he just finished up like 18 games in high A in Double A. To be the second best catching prospect in baseball behind a 19 year old, knowing that that 19 year old may beat you to the big leagues by a little bit. I don't know if everybody was working out of a control variable. Basayo would. There's a chance Salas beats Basayo to the big leagues, but. um Like you mentioned, man, you give this guy enough time, he's going to be the number one prospect in baseball. We're not saying if. Like, it does feel more like when than if. Yeah, We got to understand he's 17. I hope they do the right thing with him and they put him in places where he can succeed instead of 
oh my God, I'm overmatched. All right, more, go up, go up, go up. Like, that's not fun. That kind of hampered C.J. Abrams' development, yep. and now we saw him actually bloom. Yep. I hope and it's not an Abrams thing. That's a great point, because Abrams like had to finish his development at the big league level, and I think it takes elite and makeup. People, and he lost his luster. Yeah, People fell out of love with Abrams because they were like, wait, this guy sucks. No, he was just 20, playing three levels below, above where he should have been playing. With injuries mixed in too, like it was, yes. just, it was yes. malpractice the way he was handled, and and I'm glad that he was phenomenal in the second half of last season. Another one of my favorite dives that I did last year. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, I do think that all of those tools across the board progress to above average, and he becomes so well rounded with. And if he has the track record and just all of the intangibles, that he becomes one of the top prospects in baseball. But that said, like, what if it all is closer to average, and he just was always a guy that was ahead of his years. That's where it can become a little bit difficult to to know exactly where it all ends up. I think he's going to be closer to the former, which will result in him being one of the better catching prospects in the game and and a guy I'm very, very excited about. And this is going to be a really fun year to watch him because he's going to be challenged, but hopefully challenged at the same spot, spend the whole year in double. And I think he will start to get acclimated relatively quickly there. And, you know, we'll see how it all kind of shakes out. Next up and number one, Samuel Basayo. We, as we mentioned, uh, I mean, this card or excuse me, this Orioles wrong bird, this Orioles prospect, man, it, I, we, we, I put out a tweet a little while ago um, comparing some of the best teenage seasons that we have seen in the last like 20 years. And Samuel Basayo alongside Jackson Holiday was two of the best that we've seen. I'll, I'll, I'll pull up that the exact numbers behind that in a second. But I mean, Basayo, it was just ridiculous what we saw from this guy. He was 18. And I mean, just didn't blink at any stop. There's a little bit of whiff in there. And I kept waiting for the whiff and chase because he's aggressive and he whiffs a little bit. I kept waiting for those things to rear their head and never did. And if anything, he just kept cutting down as he would rise levels. The chase would go down and the whiff would go down. And I'm like, what is going on here? This guy's like getting better and better as he pushes up and all said and done. You include postseason games and all that good stuff. 313, 402, 551 slash line. That's a 953 OPS, 19.5% K rate, 12% walk rate, 20 bombs. And I think he's got room for a lot more. Yeah. I've got I've got the uh, numbers up right here. Highest OPS by a teenage prospect in full season ball since 2010, minimum 400 plate appearances. Bo Bichette in 2017 between low A and high A was number one, 988 OPS. Edgar Caro in 22 had a 965. And then it's Samuel Bisayo and it's 953. He climbed from low A to double A. Then Byron Buxton before he was the number one prospect in baseball. Jackson Holiday, the year he was crowned the number one prospect in baseball, 941. Will Myers at 934. Mike Trout at 918. <laughs> Elite company. And Bisayo is third after Bichette, who is a 30 30 threat every year. And Edgar Carroll in low A. Um, man, like, there's not a hole that I can poke in this guy's offensive profile. Like, the one ho- hole that you can poke is, oh, is this guy a first baseman? I don't care if he's a first baseman, to be totally honest. Because he's huge, he's young, he's going to get stronger and more chiseled. And, again, it's going to turn into 40 homers, maybe. Yeah. Like, it's... It's ridiculous what we can dream on offensively with this guy. And I, I think he's good enough to 
catch a couple times a week. And I think that might ultimately be what it looks like, right? You want to preserve Adley Rutschman. That's your franchise. That That is the yeah. face of your franchise alongside maybe a couple other guys. We talk about Gunnar Henderson as well. But I think there's a world where Basayo catches one to two times a week. Adley catches the rest of the days. And Basayo then plays first or DHs. Can you put four game sample here? And I don't like working with four game samples. But when you get brought up to double A to close out the year and in four games, which by the way, he caught two of those. He went seven for 15 in those two, in those four games with one strikeout in double A. That's the dude, the kid's first taste of double. And he's doing that through four games. And if you also just sort through the end of the season, like what he did on the, <laughs> this is the funniest thing in the world. Okay. His final 25 games, Jack, this is while climbing multiple levels, 416, 505, 831. It's a 1336 OPS, 16 walks, 17 strikeouts. He had more extra base hits, 18 extra base hits than strikeouts. What in the world is that? He got better level by level, and he hit 300 with an 890 OPS in low A. But he played a month in high A in 1131 OPS, and then that four-game sample was that four-game sample in double A. But... The fact that low A was your worst stop, come on. So last stat for you, his final, I want to see how far I could go while the OPS would still be over a thousand. Like how long of a stretch can I make it towards the end of the season? If you go yeah. from the final 83 games, so that takes you from May 20th onward, 1,008 OPS. So yeah, he got better as the year went on, but he was, he was elite in May moving forward. So, I mean, that's, just crazy stuff. And then in terms of catching, I am a little worried. The one thing I'm worried about is that he thickens out a little bit more and just doesn't move as well. If that happens, then, you know, it might be harder to project him there, you know, as, as a guy that can really stick there. What I do love is the catching and throwing ability in terms of he's he does move well, getting up and snap throwing. He's got a really good arm. He gunned down, I think, more than a third of base runners. So that exactly a third. Exactly a third. That helps a ton. And I think, you know, okay, the receiving isn't great. You can work on the blocking and it's once to twice a week. And the other five days a week, you have the best catcher, maybe defensively in the sport. I, I think at least of an everyday player, that'll be just fine. So I, I do think that he's good enough to be uh, at least a serviceable catcher. And if he's that, he's probably one of the best offensive catchers if it all works out in the game. And again, there's things that he could do better offensively in terms of the underlying stuff. He could still chase less. So if he cuts down on the chase, which I think for him, it's more of an approach thing just because he's hitting everything he saw because he could as he starts to just learn to, to draw some more walks too, which he already does for a guy with a high chase. It's like one of the most nuanced high chase rates I've ever seen. <laughs> he's going to start walking more than he strikes out. And if that happens, it's it's game over. So I think yeah. this guy could be one of the best hitters uh, in the minor leagues, period, uh, by the end of this year. I'm planting my flag. Basayo is my guy. He is the, I think he puts together the best offensive season that we see in minor league baseball in 2024. He's my, he's my pick, I guess, for, for minor, minor league, league hitter of the year. Love yeah, it. he's I my pick. It. I'm excited for that, for those episodes as we get forward or get into those, but we already gave that, gave that one away because I, I, I know that you've said that a couple of times on here and I hope you're right because that would look really, really fun and maybe would finally encourage the paralyzed Michael Elias to <laughs> finally push forward and make an aggressive move, not trading him, but trade some other guys knowing that you have a dog who can play first base 
and and catch and DH. That'll do it for this episode. We'll be talking Reds top prospects with you on Thursday. Keep an eye out for that as we continue to churn out through the NL Central. Definitely some players I'm excited to talk about with the Reds. If you could take a second to leave a rating, help us grow the show, I'd really appreciate it. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And if you're interested in some Just Baseball merch, I'm wearing my Just Baseball polo right now. we got a bunch of other stuff on there that I know people are uh, liking the new product. We got some new products coming in uh, for the winter, hoodies, sweatshirts, all that good stuff. That's linked in the episode description. And of course, is a great way to support Just Baseball. And we really appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening. Look forward to talking prospects with you on Thursday. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.